The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. If you are like most people, your life has become increasingly complex and fast-paced. As you rush from one event or task to another, you're most likely being bombarded by weapons of mass destruction that tip you off course even as you dutifully struggle to maintain your balance. Between the ringing of your cell phone, email, kids, soccer games, business trips, 514 television stations, not to mention the TiVo recordings waiting for you, and taking care of all the basics you may find yourself just skimming the surface of your life. It is easy to end up zipping from one thing to another, <coughs> replacing truly renewing activities with more numbing pleasures. These many demands on your time can force you to make tough choices. You may find yourself prioritizing obligations that cannot be avoided and rele re relegating joyful, meaning-making pursuits to the end of your to-do list. As a result, much of the time, you may feel stressed, depleted, or overwhelmed. Alternatively, you may feel a sense of restlessness, boredom, or meaninglessness. You may be someone who is now living under the radar, no longer engaged by the pursuits that once brought you a sense of meaning and joy. You may feel disconnected from the world or having trouble finding your place in it. Perhaps you want to break out into a richer and fuller life, but you haven't yet figured out how. Or maybe you have reached a place of relative balance and abundance in your life. And now you want to integrate your insights and transformations more fully into your relationships, your work, and your creative pursuits. Perhaps you envision that when you live from a place of greater depth, the roots and fruits of your life will generate the kind of sustenance that touches others. You may want to create a life that will allow you to contribute to the well-being of your community in many ways, 
that are in line with your talents, affinities, inner resources, and most authentic nature. Regardless of which of these drives you can relate to the most, it may be a little bit of each. You can probably identify a desire within yourself to live more deeply. If so, you are not alone. As psychologist John Kabat-Zinn says to us, a huge and rising hunger there is in the world on the part of just about everybody for authentic experience and reconnecting with what's deepest and best in ourselves in an ever-accelerating and complex society. The good news, opportunities to transform your life in ways both small and large are available to you in every moment of every day. There are an infinite number of doorways into living deeply. The possibly daunting news, living deeply may require nothing less than a complete transformation of the way you view the world and your place in it. Good evening. For most of us, particularly in our Western culture and society, as described in the words that I just shared with you, life is at best ambiguous, uncertain. We wake up in the morning because the alarm clock went off and proceed to go about our day taking care of responsibilities. We talk about the things we have to do as things we have to do. We give them the name responsibilities. And whenever we are challenged at the possibility or about the possibility that they're not really responsibilities but priorities in our life, we immediately go to defend them. You don't understand. We have to do these things. And yet all the evidence explored by, looked into, inquired about by many different psychologists, scientists, and spiritual teachers show that the opposite is true. Perhaps, as the writer suggests, we may be at a place where we are seeking a more meaningful and purposeful life. I believe that to be true about so many people, especially those that come to Pine Wind. The paradox lies in discovering how to achieve that and what that means. Tonight we're going to talk about a fundamental awareness in Buddhism about creating clarity in one's life through living a more moral or mindful existence or a way of living, if you will. One of the problems with translating Buddhist teachings in the West has to do with semantics. So before I go any further, I want to warn you that this word moral or morality in Buddhist teachings does not mean the same thing we tend to think about when we think about morality in the West. It has a much more deeper and more profound meaning than just deciding what is right and what is wrong, what is good, and what is bad, and living your life accordingly. And we'll talk about that more this evening. So whenever we take a look at the uh, definition 
of morality as we understand it in the West. We come up with such definitions as a person's standard of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and what is not acceptable for them to do. Moral conduct in the, in the West tends to involve, uh, again, how to act appropriately in society, what is acceptable by the majority, and so forth. Four commonly acceptable principles, for example, in the healthcare ethics community has a much closer relationship with the Buddhist teaching and understanding of morality. Buddhist ethics are traditionally based on what Buddhist view as the enlightened perspective of the Buddha or other enlightened beings such as bodhisattvas. So when we talk about living a morally mindful life, we understand it to mean in the Buddhist community, again, something far more deeper, something far more profound than what is right as opposed to what is wrong, what is good as opposed to what is bad. It has to do with an inner awareness and the cultivation of the ground for what Buddhists call our basic goodness to surface and thrive. That is to say, to live mindfully moral or morally mindful, whichever you prefer, is the means by which we cultivate Buddha nature to surface or to liberate ourselves from a lifetime of ego delusion. It is the means by which we cultivate the ground for the seeds of our Buddha nature to not only take deeper root in our lives, but to come to fruition and to thrive. We understand morality as an inner state of mind and one that is very personal at the same time. So for example, even though you are sitting with a group of monks in this room wearing the symbol of people who have chosen to live morally, the precepts that we have all agreed to live by are not considered as laws or commandments, but again, for each of us individually, another means in Zen Buddhism to cultivate the ground for awareness and enlightenment to surface and to thrive. We understand, as the Buddha taught, that each of us possess what we call basic goodness. That is to say that at the ground of our being, no matter whether we've lived a whole lifetime reflecting otherwise, it never changes. We do not fall out of grace, for example. But at the ground of our very being, is this basic goodness, this basic tendency towards not only loving-kindness and compassion and virtue, but also towards a sense of confidence and wholeness. There is the ancient Zen saying, even if the sun were to rise in the west, the bodhisattva knows one way. What does this mean? Scientifically, if the sun were to rise in the west, catastrophic events would take place among the cosmos and on the earth. <coughs> Everything we know as life now would change dramatically. Probably great tragedy would strike uh, the earth itself. So the statement indicates that for the Bodhisattva, even if something as catastrophic as the sun rising in the west were to happen, the Bodhisattva knows one way. The Bodhisattva is not, if you will, shook 
by the events and circumstances of his or her life. The Bodhisattva is not ambiguous as to what direction or what response is appropriate and what is inappropriate. And this is achieved by, again, cultivating a ground through a disciplined mindfulness way of being, a disciplined way of living one's life. I want to share with you a quote from Thomas Merton that I used in a a recent uh, blog I just wrote. Some of you may have read it on Facebook already. Merton says this about Zen. He says, Zen is a concrete and lived ontology which explains itself not in theoretical positions, but in acts emerging out of a certain quality of consciousness and awareness. Only by these acts and by this quality of consciousness can Zen be judged. He goes on to say in his book, The Zen uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, both Christianity and Buddhism show that suffering remains inexplicable, most of all for the man who attempts to explain it in order to evade it, or who thinks explanation itself is an escape. Suffering is not a problem as if it were something we could stand outside of and control. Suffering, as both Christianity and Buddhism see, each in its own way, is part of our very ego identity and empirical existence. And the only thing to do about it is to plunge right into the middle of contradiction and confusion in order to be transformed by what Zen calls the great death and Christianity calls dying and rising with life. From the Buddhist perspective, the Bodhisattva's way of life, the Bodhisattva's code for living, is a context for cultivating disciplined confidence, loving kindness, and compassion, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. (coughs) And so we choose to live a moral life, and we choose to practice morality from a consciousness or conscious awareness perspective, that is to say, in the modern term used often, mindfully. So tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about the essence of mindfulness, because this is another term used in our society today, promoted in various different schools as a means to this or that. From the Zen Buddhist perspective, mindfulness training and mindfulness living has to do with everything else in Zen practice and Zen training, and that is the cultivation of the ground for enlightenment or awakening from a lifetime of ego delusion to occur, apart from which, apart from the moral life or sila, as I'll explain it more in a moment, as it is described in the Bali translation, apart from living morally and mindfulness used as the means of an awareness of that, uh, the cultivation of Buddha awareness of enlightenment is not possible. So this idea of the moral life for the Bodhisattva is quintessential. Even if the sun were to rise in the West, the Bodhisattva knows only one way. (coughs) This is a process by which we learn to step 
outside ourselves. Why is this essential? For most of us, meditation and the other practices brought about in Buddhism tends to be a means to appease the self. Most of us practice most of us practice uh, the various different disciplines as a way of feeling better. But the moral life in Buddhism, or the life of the Bodhisattva, has to do with achieving wholeness and well-being by stepping outside oneself. Another way of saying this, by living for a purpose greater than myself. Most of us feel that our lives have no meaning or purpose because most of us define the meaning of our lives and the purpose of our lives from a very egocentric place, from a very self-centered place. So we tend to pray in a way that, for example, benefits ourselves in our petitioning for our desires and, and wants and so forth to be uh, answered. We tend to live moral lives because this will gain us good karma, as some uh, wrongly instructed uh, teachers may talk about it, or to get to heaven and so forth. But in Zen, we understand the moral life as a means of stepping outside the self, the egocentric self, for it is only in stepping outside, or as Merton quotes and says to us, it is only in the great death that we find the full meaning of life. It is only in dying to this self that is always wanting and desiring and viewing the world from a particular point of view. It is only in dying to that experience and awakening through the cosmic or universal experience of this true self, of one's Buddha nature, that we really arrive at wholeness and well-being. As the writer's uh, words pointed to, meaningful and purposeful life may mean very well, and I would suggest does mean absolutely, perhaps having a total transformation in how I view myself. And that transformation includes viewing myself in relationship to others. Now, I'm going to read to you the entire blog if you didn't get to read it yet because it's relevant at this point. Like so many, I ponder what life will be for future generations, the future of our nation, the planet, but most especially humanity. For what is a man or woman's life without virtue, without honor, without passion, without community, without a heartfelt benevolence, compassion, and love. It is our humanity which permits us to recognize beauty, to experience wonder, to laugh, to dance, to play, to cry, to grieve, to respond to injustice, to care for and to appreciate life. The healing and renewal of the natural world is not only necessary if we expect to survive, but it is nature which presents us with any real insight of how to survive, and more than that, how to thrive. Einstein wrote, look deep into nature 
and then you will understand everything better. When we do, it is clear that the survival of our species, as well as any sense of well-being and true joy, is not realized in isolation. Each of us are, part, are a part of nature, parts of a whole. It is only ego delusion which has convinced some of us otherwise. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to learn and live as the natural world alone can teach us. When we are willing to look deeply into nature, we see that survival, as well as our, well our very well-being, is a function of our conscious participation in an interconnected systemic paradigm the result of a complex web of interdependencies. Each individual species, every unique life form, co-contribute to the health and resilience of the entire forest. The first lesson of nature is community. The second is benevolence. Each and every individual species lives to benefit the life of all the species. Benevolence unites us with a larger reality, an all-inclusive, diverse, self-organizing cosmos, a community where each individually unique element's contribution is invaluable and whose participation is necessary for the survival and the well-being of the whole. All for one, one for all. Authentic spirituality is the means by which we endeavor to understand our existence by understanding the essence of that existence. Authentic spirituality awakens us from any and all delusion and helps us to see what is really so. It invites us into a deeper communion with that larger reality which sustains all of life and the myriad life forms. Zen spirituality's focus is on training, practice, and experience, and less on doctrines or beliefs. It its emphasis is on direct experience through a series of ancient and contemporary processes which result in what Zen calls the Great Death. In order to bring about a merger into a larger reality which transcends concepts, dogmas, and beliefs. Once again, Thomas Merton wrote about Zen that Zen is a concrete and lived ontology which explains itself not in theoretical propositions but in acts emerging out of a certain quality of consciousness and awareness. Only by these acts and by this quality of consciousness can Zen be judged. Again, in his book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, Merton writes, both Christianity and Buddhism show that suffering remains inexplicable, most of all for the man or woman who attempts to explain it in order to evade it, or who thinks explanation itself is an escape. Suffering is not a problem, as if it were something we could stand outside of and control. Suffering, as both Christianity and Buddhism see, each in its own way, is part of our very ego identity and empirical existence. And the only thing to do about it 
is to plunge right into the middle of contradiction and confusion in order to be transformed by what Zen calls the great death and Christianity calls dying and rising with Christ. The spirituality of the 21st century will need to stress less doctrine and more experience. Zen training and Zen life is sensual by nature. It emphasizes the need to see, to listen, to smell, to feel, to know intimately that life which sustains each of us and the world around us. The spirituality of the 21st century will require new forms of kinship and love. We will need to learn how to include rather than exclude, value rather than diminish, lift up rather than conquer, and share rather than profit. The spirituality of the 21st century will need to cultivate and nurture a global culture of what the Buddha referred to as the prime virtue, apameda, or care, literally translated as non-negligence, non-indifference, non-carelessness, non-nonchalance, non-heartlessness, perhaps even non-mindlessness, non-apathy, and non-cynicism. He taught that among the three poisons of life, we find indifference. Individuals, communities, and nations can no longer ignore the suffering of any one of its members, whether through poverty, injustice, or war, including the natural world. The first lesson of nature and authentic spirituality for the 21st century is community. The second lesson of nature and authentic spirituality for the 21st century is benevolence. We already have the way. Each and every one of us must become the means. At the center of our being is a point of nothing with nothingness, which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own world. Come, let us touch that point together. When we do, we will understand everything better. So when we talk about living morally from the Buddhist perspective, it is grounded in a context of interdependent relationships. Each of us are part of a whole, interconnected by a cosmic paradigm that demands interdependent relationships. What does that mean? We can no longer assume that the moral life has to do with, again, a means by which my behavior in it or my participation in it benefits me alone. In fact, living morally, living mindfully morally, is the code of the means by which we live appropriately in relationship with others. So once again, the Bodhisattva's vow can be summed up in one term, can be summed up in one sentence. To live my life as a benefit for others. For the enlightened being, the meaning of my life 
is to live it authentically. And to live it authentically is to bring my talents and my gifts, that authentic way of doing it, as a means to fulfilling the purpose of not only my life, but all life forms. And that purpose being to bring my talents and gifts, my wisdom and my authentic nature for the benefit of the whole, for the benefit of others. So the moral code is the means by which we achieve that. To live mindfully and to live morally requires us to cultivate a ground of awareness of not only just our, again, egocentric desires and wishes and dreams and wants, but to live and cultivate an awareness of other in every moment of our lives. The first lesson of nature and the first lesson of any authentic spiritual practice is community. We were created, if you will, we live, if you will, with a singular meaning to be in relationship with all other life forms in the forest. When we take that look into nature deeply, as Einstein suggested, we see community. We see individual life forms interconnected and interdependent upon a cosmic ecosystem of supporting one another. It is only in the human species, and this is why the human species dominates responsibility for so much suffering on the planet. It is only in the human species that we find, uh, if not a willingness, at least a, if you will, attraction to the notion of separateness and apartness from others. And this is why we tend to live more immorally. And again, from the Buddhist definition, we mean live our lives as if we live separate and apart from the rest. To live my life as if this is about my life. So as I said earlier, we tend to wake up in the morning because the alarm clock goes off. And we tend to go about the day quite ambiguously, simply putting out fires, simply taking care of the circumstances and situations that challenge us from maybe feeling better about ourselves or feeling better about the world. This way of living is a product of that ignorance consciousness that Buddhism talks about. When the Buddha defined the cause of suffering in the Four Noble Truths, he defined it as ignorance. That is to say, we are ignorant of our interconnectedness and our interdependency. And because of that ignorance, we ignore what is incumbent upon us as part of a whole, and that is to live in relationships with each other. So when we take a look at the practice of the moral life from the Bodhisattva's perspective, the moral life is the means by which, again, we cultivate a ground within us. I want you to hear this definition of morality again from the Pali. The Pali word for morality is sila. Sila is a code of conduct that embraces a commitment to harmony and self-restraint, with the principal motivation being nonviolence or freedom from causing harm. So once again, the idea of morality has less to do with 
again, a law or a commandment, as it has to do with the means of being able, being able to relate appropriately with the rest of the cosmos, with the rest of the species. We bring the moral code as a means for fulfillment, not only of my own satisfaction, but for the fulfillment of the whole of life as well. It goes on to say, and this is where it gets, for me at least, essential. Sila is an internal, aware, and intentional behavior. By that we mean <coughs> that my, moral, my morality as Sajakurushi, as this individual life form over here, is about my morality. In Buddhism, morality is not defined as the law to be followed by the whole, and if not followed, be punished, as we find in other uh, schools of morality. It has to do with an internal attitude taken on by bodhisattvas, an internal awareness of my behavior, my thoughts, my words. So, for example, in the technique often referred to as mindfulness, which comes from the ancient Zen training of cultivating awareness, in developing more awareness, the awareness or the focus of my awareness has to do with my own thoughts, my own speech, and my own behavior. And it is always balanced on the premise, is my thinking, are the thoughts that I am indulging or <coughs> thinking about at the moment, are they beneficial? Are my words beneficial? Are my actions beneficial? I was talking about this with Chiman the other night at dinner. This would include, and it gets so specifically detailed in the training of it, it gets down to real precision when we understand this. This would include, for example, in the hypothetical situation I brought up at dinner was, let's say you and I are discussing what we're talking about tonight, and you're sharing your thoughts on that, and I have an opinion about what you said. For the Bodhisattva, the appropriate response is based on, is the opinion I have beneficial? And my desire to share that opinion is it rooted in wanting to benefit, wanting to be a benefit, or is it just me, you know, spewing off how smart I am? You see? Is it ego-based? Mindfulness is often promoted in, again, a cultural culture of consumerism in the West as, again, another way of feeling better about yourself. But for the Bodhisattva, mindfulness is the means by which there is this internal training constantly going on. So, for example, let's say my opinion about what you just shared is very frustrating. It is accompanied by a desire to show you how wrong you are. Again, we come back to the discipline of, I have taken a vow to live my life as a benefit. So what would it benefit me to prove you wrong? What would it benefit me to prove, perhaps, your lack of real understanding? So again, the base or the ground of morality in Zen has to do with the Bodhisattva's vow to live his or her life as a benefit for others. All of the precepts are grounded in that. 
And they're comparable to, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, what is called <coughs> the four commonly accepted principles of healthcare ethics, among them being the principle of respect for autonomy. So, for example, with the uh, scenario that I just shared with you, I may disagree with you, but my respect for you to have that opinion is essential. And one of the things that I've been hearing a great deal watching the news about the tragedy at the baseball field in Washington a few days ago uh, is that people are beginning to talk about the need to have civil conversation. And again, when we talk about the respect for autonomy from the Bodhisattva's perspective, uh, it's respecting your right to be ignorant. <laughs> okay? It's respecting your right to have that opinion, and so forth. So again, in my desire in that moment to sh you know, correct you, would that be beneficial? And, the, and for the Bodhisattva then, if not, the appropriate behavior would be not to share my opinion, but to remain silent. In the Bodhisattva's vow in the sutras that we chant, there's this very challenging line that says, you know, the Bodhisattva bows down to those who verbally or physically abuse them. Say, even that. And that's no, no different than Jesus teaching to turn the other cheek, isn't it? And we tend to read, of the, read those things, and because of our own internal ambiguity about life, we, we, we dismiss them as just a nice teaching. When in fact, as I have been saying so far tonight, we are to understand the moral life and applying mindfulness as the technique to cultivating the moral life as a means toward achieving our own freedom and awareness. So in Buddhism, again, back to the scenario of the exchange of opinions, I may get to sit there and churn in my desire to show you how stupid you are. <laughs> and that experience, or training in just experiencing that, uh, has the potential of setting me free from my own selfishness. Any questions? Hmm. I, was, I, I was just thinking too, when I, when I go to be a service to someone or help somebody, um, it's important for me to realize, um, and I guess it's the same thing, um, to, um, what's my question? To, to, not, um, to not be codependent, to not be uh, enabling, mm -hmm. but to be just helpful, just simply helpful. Yeah. Um, not overextend not, not over that? Not. Yeah, yeah. When we fully understand the moral life from the Buddhist uh, teachings, it's about presence mm -hmm. and how just the Bodhisattva's presence to live nobly, to live from a code of principle rather than some ambiguous you know, behavior, which the, the way most of us do. Most of us, most of the people that I've spoken to over the past 42 years of teaching and counseling, you know, when they describe their life, it's very ambiguous. It, it's comparable to what I often call being a firefighter. They wake up and they're out in the field putting out all these little fires all over the forest all week, you know, all day, and so forth. But for the Bodhisattva, 
who lives by the code of morality, the code of compassion, the code of love and kindness. Everything is clearly defined. Therefore, it is living mindfully moral that creates clarity in our lives. Mm -hmm. There's no debate for me as to this way or that way and so forth. When the basis of my behavior is, is my behavior, either thought, word, or speech, that's how we behave in the world, is my behavior being a benefit to the forest? Does it, again, respect the autonomy of each individual member of the forest? Uh, the principle of non-malfeasance, to do no harm, okay? All right, so many times, uh, you know, there is accompanied with an opinion, maybe wanting to do harm, you know, verbally, if not physically. Um, the principle of beneficence. So again, benevolence. Am I benefiting? Am I benefiting by acting in this way? And finally, the principle of justice. And again, the principle of justice, again, recognizes each person's individual dignity and individual inherent right to be treated with dignity and to be treated with respect. This is the path of the Bodhisattva. This is the code that even if the sun were to rise in the West, the Bodhisattva never, never ceases or betrays. Thank you. Anyone else? So as I said earlier and on numerous occasions, we tend to see spirituality as just another means and what Trungpa Rinpoche called, you know, our spiritual materialism. He says that the ego will use anything, including spirituality, including the spiritual practices, to benefit itself, you know So we tend to think of the spiritual practices, whether they are prayer or meditation or yoga or the energy practice, as a means of making my life more comfortable, my life more pleasurable. But in fact, the spiritual practices, as they were designed by their founders, are intended to empower us to realize our fullest potential, which is a modern term for to realize our Buddha nature, to realize our Christ-likeness, uh, to realize, again, our full humanity. And so we bring this morality to our relationships. And again, the morality, whether we're talking about, for example, the precepts, whether we're talking about the precept, for example, of not taking what is not given. So, so immediately we tend to think of that precept, depending on how it is interpreted in the various different communities, some say the precept of not stealing. So here's another example of how precise the code gets in our training. It gets down to the finest, finest thread. When we talk about the precept of not taking what is not given, we don't just mean material things. We don't just mean robbing someone of their possession. We also mean stealing time by demanding attention, by dominating the conversation where it's all about me, it's all about my thoughts, it's all about what I want to talk about. That is another form of stealing. So again, the training, mindfulness training, has to do with being aware when I'm behaving that way. Okay? And again, 
Is that beneficial? It is never beneficial to steal what does not belong to you, to take what is not given. Likewise, the, the precept of not killing includes not killing time, okay? Not wasting time. It includes not killing another person's spirit or another person's passion. You know, uh, I, I think about my, my eight-year-old daughter and how there are things for an eight-year-old that are just so exciting and so this that is not necessarily for an adult, you see. And it is definitely not my practice to squelch that. My practice to let her have her excitement about what looks to me like, what? <laughs> and so forth. So the moral life in Buddhism and living mindfully has to do with relationships. It has to do with the means of cultivating the ground to be in relationship with others. It has to do with cultivating the ground of confidence. The ground of confidence, if you will, is fully manifested and nurtured by, again, my disciplined uh, following of the code of my life. You who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. Without a code, you can't live. There's no living. There may be uh, surviving. There may be getting through the day. But when people ask me, you know, what is at the heart of your fulfillment? The heart of my fulfillment has to do with being true, you know, to, to my vows, to, to living my life as a vow. So the code is absolutely necessary. And most people's lives seem to feel meaningless because they don't have a meaning larger than apathy, you know, or appeasing themselves, appeasing ego's desires, and they don't have a purpose larger than themselves. And I want to talk a few moments about that. The code, or the precepts, or the vow, whichever synonym works for you, takes me outside of myself and has me living a purpose larger than myself. So again, the center of that way of life is benevolence. As a monk, as a human being, as a father, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, I'm always operating from the place His Holiness the, the Dalai Lama describes when he once said, every time I am going to, whether it's a crowd of a thousand or more people or ten people, when I enter the room, before I enter the room, as I enter the room, and while I'm in the room, one thought dominates all my thoughts. How can I be a benefit to these people? Where can I be beneficial? A friend of mine, many years ago, back in the 70s, used to say, life is really simple. Relationships are really simple, he said. He would say, all you need to do is discover what is needed and produce that. And what he was talking about is the practice of benevolence. So mindfulness practice, as well as mindfulness training, has to do with developing an inherent awareness of when I am being beneficial and when I'm not being beneficial. Pema Chodron says, we are always operating from one of two places. There is no middle, there is no option. We are either opening or closing. We are either harming or liberating ourselves and others from harm, and so forth. There's no middle ground. There's no other option there. So for the mindfulness 
technique to be appropriately applied in my daily living, that is the context. Am I now acting through my words or behavior benef uh, but, you know, as from a benevolent place, from a benevolent heart, to serve and to contribute? And this applies to myself as well. For example, is my desire to eat certain foods? Is my desire to expose myself to certain environments? Is that beneficial? Is that choice benevolent, again, towards myself? So this is not just about, you know, being beneficial to others. This is about compassion for oneself. Compassion is, again, the ground by which I'm able to see what is needed. Compassion is rooted in the first noble truth. And that is why the Buddha said, if you resolve the first noble truth, all the other, the remaining three, and the Eightfold Noble Path falls into place. So a modern interpretation for me of the first noble truth is this. Everyone, no matter who they are, whether they are of the 1% we talk about in this country, or the, the bottom of the 99%, everyone is suffering in some way or another. Suffering is inexplicable, as Merton said. <coughs> Every single person, as I often say, is just trying to get through the night. The question is, how do you not only get through the night and wake up in the morning, but how do you thrive from that moment forward? For the Bodhisattva, again, it has to do with what I call the principle of identity. I identify with a code for life. When I identify with a code, I am able to step outside my egocentric desires, outside this delusional self of mine, and participate in a purpose greater than myself. So as I often say simply to people, if you want to achieve, if you want to end boredom, if you, if you tend to feel like you're always bored, help someone. You can't be bored and helpful. See? You can't be lonely and engaged in relationship. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you want to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happier, practice compassion for others. You know so it's always about stepping outside myself. In the Buddhist practice of, again, receiving and living the precepts, they take us outside ourselves. Like I used to say often, there are some people in my life that I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for. And I do. I may not feel like it, and I may not even want to. I mean, there have been occasions in my life when I'd rather just pop them, you know, and so forth. And sometimes that's appropriate, but not all the time, or a lot, you know, But I do. Code takes us outside ourselves, and mindfulness also takes us outside ourselves, because when practicing and training in mindfulness, I am the observer, you know, say. And the more that I dwell in the posture of the observer, the less uh, grip this egocentric self I call myself has on me. Any questions? Whoa. Don't go, I have a question for you. No, she may speak. Hi. What is the word ontology in Merton's quote? 
as an ontology? Yeah, it has to do with, again, Zen has more to do with what we're talking about, this way of being, this experiencing, you know, by being this way rather than conceptualizing it. So rather than talking about beliefs, Zen awareness or enlightenment through Zen is achieved, again, by direct practice. We can only get there, he is saying, through practice, through contact with life. So as, <laughs> as the quote goes on, he goes on to say, we tend to think of you know, talking our way out of suffering and as if that's going to work, explaining the suffering away. And that includes, and I will say this, because I hear a lot of this in the spiritual world, that includes our notion that we understand what the universe is up to. Okay? When we say things like, the universe is, you see, and that includes statements like, there must be a lesson in this. Now, sometimes it just sucks. <laughs> no lesson. No, no lesson to learn. And we need to experience the suckiness. Okay? And so forth. So that is what Merton is making distinction between, a, <coughs> again, a spirituality grounded in religious beliefs and one that is grounded in on-the-job training. Anyone else? Hi. Hi. What's the name of that book you were reading from? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> I never tell anybody. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Okay. In fact, one day I'm just going to hand it to Emmy and burn it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Does it beneficial being? at the present moment because let's take for example the story of the Good Samaritan was there took care of the needs of that individual and the Good Samaritan went on his journey he didn't come back and say well look I'll take care of you for the next four days or I'll continue to see your needs but it's it seems to be beneficial at that the present moment is, is key to it so that you ensure that you're not uh, just fulfilling some in, internal need but, all, but you're being what's needed at that present moment. Yeah, and, and you, you, bring up, you bring up an important issue and it goes back to the, about being an enabler, okay? So this is another vital understanding of Buddhist perspective of morality. It's not to be absolute. It is relative to the moment. What is appropriate? And here's where, again, you know, when, when, the, uh, when the writer says to us, sila is an internal awareness, an intentional ethical behavior. He's talking about the individual developing his own internal uh, fulfillment, internal uh, growth, and so forth. And I say it that way, or I mention that for this reason. Uh, again, these are conversations that Shaman and I have had on numerous occasions. We tend to think of you know, taking the precepts as absolute. As I said a moment ago, sometimes, um, sometimes it's appropriate to be quiet, and sometimes it's appropriate to speak up but only through nurturing wisdom in your training are you able to make that distinction. So yes, it's relevant to that moment, what is needed in that moment. 
possibly coming back, as you, the, your scenario you shared, is uh, you're enabling. Where now you become an enabler or codependent. I used to hate that phrase. <laughs> Pardon me? I used to hate that phrase. Used to hate codependent. Yeah. Anyone else? So, first, you must have a code that you can live by. And the appropriate code, whether one is Buddhist, whether one is Christian, whether one is Jewish, or one of no faith whatsoever, is grounded in and rooted in reality. So Einstein says to us, if you want to understand life better, look deeply into nature. And when you look deeply into nature, you don't find alternative facts. You don't find philosophy. You don't find opinions. You find scientific evidence based on what can be seen, what can be touched, what can be known by direct contact, that the whole of nature is, again, an interconnected, independent ecosystem, whereby each individual form of nature exists not only for its own survival and takes from the forest what benefits itself, but behaves in such a way that it benefits others as well. That is the ground of the code. From there is where the Buddha developed the Eightfold Noble Path, because his awakening included an awareness of that interconnected and interdependent reality. He woke up on that seventh day and realized that his view of the world was the cause of his suffering and the last ten years of his life, where he felt the need to go in search of meaning and purpose. When he saw the reality as interconnected and interdependent, he realized that the cause of his suffering, as is ours, is our ignorance of that fact. So all throughout the cosmos we find an interconnected, interdependent. That saying about the Bodhisattva speaks to that. If the sun were, existed separate and apart from the rest of the cosmos, its rising in the west would make no difference. But because of its interconnectedness with the remaining planets and stars and systems throughout the cosmos, its behavior affects the whole system. Just as your behavior, whether you've realized it yet or not, affects the whole system. And the whole system is interconnected with your happiness and well-being. And you need to see that. Apart from community, fulfillment is not possible. It's not possible. A person, Merton says, does not realize his or her meaning for life in isolation. We realize our meanings for life in relationship with others and so forth. So that is the ground for whatever the code, whatever wording you may put to that code is born from. We are grounded in an interconnected, interdependent reality that exists in community, or relationship, interrelationships, and that exists as a benevolent society, a benevolent life form. We exist to benefit all other life forms, including ourselves, and so forth. So it is incumbent upon me, realizing that, to live my life in a way 
whereby I can be a benefit to others. So if I'm living my life in a way that, you know, I'm tearing my body up, I'm not taking care of it, I'm exposing myself regularly to environments that is making me really stressful, and I'm not taking the time to meditate, not taking the time to find peace, where I'm engaging in conversation that is malicious and prejudicial and discriminating, when I'm behaving in all those ways, I cannot be a benefit. I cannot be a benefit for others. And for the Bodhisattva, that is a poem, the very notion of that. So when people ask me, why do you live the life you do? Because I live the life I do. <laughs> because this is you know, the means by which I nurture and cultivate the ability to be able to act appropriately in the world, and so forth. So whether one is a monk or not, and often you've heard me say, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live like a monk. And the monk lives in relationship. The monk makes his, all, you know, back to this sense of clarity that this way of living brings about. For the monk, there is no ambiguity. It is, again, very clear because all my thoughts, all my actions, all my choices, all my decisions are rooted in that, again, interconnected, interdependent reality whereby my part of that whole is to live my life as a benefit for others. From there, I act. From there, I wake up in the morning and go about my day. Throughout the course of the day, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva responds, reacts, and engages in one way. There's your clarity. Any questions? It seems to me that it's very important to discern the spirit, what the spirit is saying to you at that moment of reaching out to be beneficial. Because I believe if you're not listening to spirit, it's coming, what you're doing is coming from anxiety or uh, something other than what is beneficial to that particular person. And, I, and in order to listen to spirit, you need to develop the ability to hear spirit's voice. Okay, what you call spirit. Right. Okay? So that is where, again, for the truly spiritual person, uh, the practices, the training of meditation, the training of mindfulness, the training of, again, sila or moral living, cultivates that ability to hear spirit's voice. So, again, in Zen, what, what, is, what you are referring to as spirit's voice and the Bodhisattva's voice are one, not two. Okay? So, for the Bodhisattva, that time spent in quieting the mind is the, is the means by which we can hear spirit's voice in order to listen to it. Most of us don't even know what that sounds like. Okay? And like you said, most of us misidentify spirit's voice with our own ego's voice. You know, if we go back to Trungpa Rinpoche's teaching that ego will use anything, including spirituality, for so many people, I think spirit's voice is really 
the voice of their own ego, and their inability to make that discernment has to do with the quintessential step towards what you're talking about, and that is the forgetting of this self, I call myself, in order for spirit's voice to emerge. Now, I used to say to my Catholic brothers and sisters when I was at Francis House, you can hear the voice of God, but first you have to shut up, you see. Because God is not about to try to speak over you. God doesn't have to even speak with you, let alone speak over you, and so forth. So, yeah, this is where listening, have we done the work to hear Spirit's voice in order to listen? So this is where, again, we're talking about a holistic, interconnected way of life. We need to be about the business of meditating and quieting the mind in order to hear that voice. Otherwise, you're right. It's all ego speaking. So it seems to me to be beneficial needs to, in listening to the Spirit, in my case, the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it, it says, like this morning, I decided to uh, tell someone something because I felt it would give them a, a, a feeling of hope. So it seems to me that, that uh, when it's beneficial, must be grounded in something uh, deeply spiritual, such as a sense of hope, a sense of well-being, and not just uh, telling the person that this is uh, the right way to go. Do mm -hmm. I make myself clear? Yeah, I think so. Do you want to say anything about that? No? Okay, good. Yeah, maybe I'm okay. <laughs> Not so good. Go ahead. I mean, I just want to emphasize, you touched on it, Roshi, I just want to emphasize that the key is to get to the place where we're not listening to our ego. And as the Roshi told us, the ego will use everything, including saying, I am the Holy Spirit, I am God, to talk to you. So how do you know, how do you get over that ability? And personally, I, I never... I'm always in doubt of where that voice is coming from. Always in doubt. And that's a safe thing to be. Because until I recognize, until I come to the place of, of uh, recognizing that I'm a Bodhisattva, that I'm a Buddha, until I, get, I, I become there, or when I'm not sitting in that consciousness, then I can easily be fooled. Um, I want to remind you that if we had people, God forbid, sitting here who were members of ISIS, they would be telling you the Holy Spirit is telling them to kill Americans. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to see that argument with them, because that's what they would insist on. Uh, so we've got to be very, very careful where we're, what we're listening to. And the key, as Roshi teaches us, is just sit. If we just sit and we just be who we are authentically, we tend to be less likely to get caught in that trap. Thank you, Roshi. Okay. There are two images that came up for me, especially the first image that came up for me when you use the actual word Holy Spirit. Uh, suddenly the thought came to me that that story in, um, um, I forget the book, where the apostles are gathered and, tech, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. Yeah, yeah. That story was actually a description of Zen Sashi. Okay, 
because they were gathered in the room confronting their fears, confronting their sense of failure and unworthiness. They were just sitting with that for a long period of time until, I will assume, saying this ego dropped away from them and this greater awareness came upon them that they called or wrote about as the Holy Spirit, God descending upon them. The other thing that I, I was uh, uh, talking about the other day is in Japan, the unsui, and that is the, this young priest who is now sent from his uh, teacher to go live in community in the Japanese monastery, uh, is, is sent to the monastery. And there's a wonderful story in a good book called uh, uh, Empty Mirror. And in the story, there's a depiction of this uh, Dutch man who went to train in a Japanese monastery. And after a long period of time of training, he was allowed to um, uh, um, take care of the Roshi, who was the Roshi's attendant. So there was an occasion where a group of women from the village wanted to come up and honor the Roshi, and they brought him tea and cookies, and he met with them to counsel. And this Dutch man was uh, with him. And they were talking about different uh, philosophies of Buddhism and all of that, and the Roshi was talking. And one of the women in the group turned to the man and said, and what is your opinion about this? And he moved to share it, and the Roshi stopped him immediately and said, he has nothing to say about this, okay? And, this, and that part of the story, that lesson is, you know, the, what the Roshi was saying, you're not ready to say anything about this. So we come back to readiness to hear the voice of the Spirit, readiness to be a benefit, okay? Just because I say to you, be a benefit, doesn't mean you, you, you are a benefit. Right. Are you ready? To, have you done the work? And there's a third story that just came to me. When I was about 15, 16 years old, I had adopted uh, the parents of a friend of mine I was in school with as my second parents. And so whenever I was upset with my own parents, I would go to them and what have you. And I loved them because most of the time I got what I thought I needed. And on this one particular evening, I was complaining about uh, my father, which I did a lot as a kid, and uh, Mr. Fitz, as I called him, surprised me. And he said to me, you're wrong. And he said to me, you know why you're wrong? Because you haven't paid your dues yet. Your father's paid his dues. You haven't paid your dues yet. And I have never forgotten that because it was a lesson of appropriateness. It was a lesson of, have you, paid, have you been through enough of life's experience to make that judgment, to make that consideration? So I come back to, again, in, in what we're talking about, across the line. You don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live and train like a monk to ever be able to hear the Spirit's voice or anything else, or anyone else's voice. Okay? I think that, in response to your friend, that in terms of what that is, a, a voice, the Spirit, or the voice of ego, or something else, that as time goes on and you develop that inner spirituality, 
you're able to discern that this is truly the voice of the Spirit. But only through that. Only through that development. Right. Thank you. Anyone else? So, there is a saying in Zen, the means is the destination and the destination is the means. Another way of saying is you get to Carnegie Hall and Enlightenment the same way. Practice, practice, practice. Or as I prefer, train, train, train. It is quintessential that we own the, what is incumbent upon us, which is to look deeply. Einstein said, look deeply into nature. He didn't say give it a glance. He didn't say take a casual, make a casual inquiry. He said look deeply. And when he talks about looking deeply into nature, in Zen we look deeply into our own nature to discover not only the essence of our own lives, but the essence of life as a whole. Because each of us are a part of that whole, a part of nature. So just as we can find in one blood drop all the entire cosmos, we can find in finding our own true essence, we come to understand the essence of, the whole, of all of life. So that is where personal training and personal engagement into the training is quintessential. As I often say, meditation, if you will, without a foundation is not meditation. And mindfulness without meditation never works. Okay? So that foundation is, again, that code of living, that bodhisattva's vow. To live my life as a vow is to live my life unconditionally committed to this way of being, which includes training myself in order to be able to respond appropriately to any given situation. And as the more and more I train myself in the ways and means that have been handed down to us through centuries, <coughs> well honed and proven to work, the more and more I train myself in those ways, there's a cultivation going on. The ground of my being is cultivating wisdom and understanding and an ability to see what is really so and not just some filtered version of what is so. The cultivation of the ground to be virtuous, to live life virtuously, to live life as a benefit through this training, through becoming quiet more often. Now mindfulness is a training that takes place off the cushion. On the cushion, we become more aware of the technique because all we're doing when we're living mindfully in the world is applying the same techniques that we apply on the cushion. So we need to train here in order to first become familiar with the means and second, cultivate the ability to apply the means in daily living. So as I said not, uh, earlier this evening, mindfulness is the means by which I develop an awareness of this self. And by this self, I mean this ego self. Mindfulness is the means by which I am consciously aware about, of my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, and my behavior in relationship to the world out here. It's not about, you know, I feel sad, so let me go do something to be happy again. 
It has to do with, again, in relationship with the world out here. So again, the code says to me to do no harm. Therefore, I am mindfully aware of when my behavior is harmful rather than beneficial. The code says to me to not take what isn't given to me. So I'm mindfully aware of, again, when I am robbing life one way or the other. The code says to me not to, um, uh, not to squander uh, my gifts, not to be stingy with my gifts. So I'm mindfully aware that my gifts are meant to be a benefit to others, not for me to reserve for myself in a miserly way. So that is what the mindfulness uh, training is about. On the cushion, it also furthermore includes being mindfully aware of those emotions that may be, you know, again, pointing me towards selfishness, pointing me towards harmfulness, and so forth. And on the cushion, we better work them out than we do in daily living, than we do in daily living. Uh, for me, uh, meditation and contemplation uh, go together. Uh, so I bring from the cushion my ability to live mindfully, and I bring from living the course of the day, doing the things I need to be doing and want to be doing, doing them mindfully, back to the cushion, where I contemplate or reflect on those feelings and thoughts I may have had in a given situation, and learn more about them by just sitting and being with them. Any questions? So it begins with a conscious declaration. And in a month, or less than a month, we will be celebrating the independence of the United States again on July 4th. And I often use this as a comparison. On that day in 1776, a group of men stood up in the streets of Philadelphia without any clarity at all as to what the future was going to be and made a declaration, a declaration that had never been made before, at least as far as anyone knows, in history. It was the first time that declaration was made. And when you read that entire declaration, when you read the beginning statement that all men are created equal and endowed by that creator with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and you read the end of that declaration, where they commit their lives, their properties, their very existence to the realization of that independence, and so forth, you find the context for the way of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, like those men on those steps in Philadelphia in 1776, begins with a simple declaration. There is no proof to what they said, there is no evidence to what they said. Prior to them saying that all men are created equal, the idea, the very notion, the very thought never existed. That anyone else had rights but kings and lords and landowners. No one had ever said that before. It was, and it's difficult for us to comprehend the profound moment that was when they declared that. Because that didn't exist in people's thinking. It didn't exist prior to that moment in people's thinking. And so for the Bodhisattva, again, de declaring or living one's life as a vow, the declaration of a vow, operates in the same way. 
There's no evidence, there's no proof, and there's, there's no, no guarantees what tomorrow will bring. But the Bodhisattva says, I will live this way, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. When you take to the cushion, especially for long hours of meditation training in what we call sashim, and there'll be one next month for you to register in and experience, when you take to the cushion, the same energy is at work there. You sit for periods of time and experience uncertainty, experience the, the psychological and emotional challenge of just letting go. There's, no, there's silence throughout the course of the day. There's uh, activity limited to, again, that uh, singular purpose of Sashin, which is to experience life in its purity, not filtered by anything. And so you sit, and emotions come, and feelings come, and desires come, and you train to just be with that, not to act on it. That long hours of training, again, is the ground for nurturing uh, the seed of our Buddha uh, nature to thrive and to come, to come alive and to thrive for each of us. Then you take that experience, discovery, which is a big part of it. For example, you find out that meditation doesn't kill you. You find out that you can not only endure, but engage and enter into the silence in a way that is profound. You take that experience and it nurtures and develops the confidence for living your life throughout the day. And again, what is required is a commitment to it, not some complacent or nonchalant, if you will, uh, effort to it. And the more and more you live your life as a vow in that way, commit to the training, on the cushion and off the cushion, transformation takes place, and that transformation not only 2,500 years ago for one man, Siddhartha, later the Buddha, not only changed his life, but it's changed the world ever since. And that's how it works. And it did that, not because he was some kind of special dude, but because his life and every other life form is interconnected and interdependent. And that's how it works. Anybody else? Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Emyo, you got anything to say? Pushing very speak. Hi. Uh, this coming Wednesday night is this, beginner's meditation. Yes, this coming Wednesday night is the beginner's meditation class. So, in the words of Suzuki Roshi, and in the words of the Buddha, on his dying bed, on his dying bed, the Buddha said these words. I'm a beginner, and that's all I ever was. So everybody should come to the Beginner's Mind class Wednesday evening, whether you've been meditating for a long time or not. Uh, 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, right? Am I right? Yes, sir. Okay. Anything else? Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone.
Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night.